Ladies and gentlemen, Millard Parrish at the piano. Thank you, Millard. Appreciate it, brother. Good morning, everybody. There's a Latin phrase I'm going to teach you this morning. Some of you probably already know it. Some of you have heard it, and maybe you don't even really know what it means. So excuse me if this isn't new to you. But the Latin phrase I want to talk to you about this morning is non sequitur. The phrase means literally, it does not follow. Here are some examples of non sequiturs this morning. My car is broken. I'm going to sleep early tonight. Dave Troutman's overseeing the service today. Tonight is pizza night at the Sullivan's. Bill is preaching today. I love the NCAA basketball tournament. Or my mom loves to read. She must hate movies. So you see the idea here, okay? Non sequiturs are statements that do not follow logically. One statement doesn't logically follow another one. The two things have little or nothing to do with each other. And if they are related, they're not logically connected. Even though most people can recognize the lack of logic in the statements I just made, those non sequiturs that I gave as examples, it's interesting to me that in our culture and in our lives, we often treat things that should be connected as totally disconnected. We act as if certain things have nothing to do with other things when they really are or should be connected in a very significant way. Now, psychology, surprisingly enough, has a name for this thing. Here's one definition of what they call compartmentalization. Compartmentalization is a subconscious psychological defense mechanism used to avoid cognitive dissonance or the mental discomfort and anxiety caused by a person's having conflicting values, cognitions, emotions, beliefs, etc., within themselves. Compartmentalization allows these conflicting ideas to coexist by inhibiting direct or explicit acknowledgement and interaction between separate compartmentalized self-states. You get that? Okay, good, because there'll be a quiz next week. Compartmentalization is a coping strategy, folks. It's a defense mechanism that we use to protect ourselves from being emotionally uncomfortable. It's how our minds deal with conflicting internal standpoints simultaneously. Or sometimes it's just how our minds deal with difficult circumstances. And honestly, I can see where such a strategy might be useful or even necessary. Think of this example. Let's say we see in the news about a child who is abused. It upsets us. If it doesn't, we're somehow pretty hard-hearted. But if we're unable to compartmentalize that somehow or to set it aside, at least for the time being, what it's going to do, it's going to eat us up emotionally. So we find this box or this compartment in our brains and we put it in there. Now, it's not gone, the thoughts about the piece of news we just saw, but it's in the box. So it's out of sight, if not totally out of mind, and it won't consume our every waking moment. There may come a time when we get it back out of the box because we might want to do something about it. We might want to pray about it. Or maybe we, there's nothing we can do about it, so we actually just kind of leave it there. There can be very practical benefits of compartmentalization. I think of my dear friend and fellow elder Jim Grinnell. He deals with, in his counseling work, some very troubling, very difficult situations all the time. But if he dwells on these things constantly, if he brings them home to Laura, 
or if he struggles with them, it's going to consume him. He won't be able to do anything else effectively. He won't be able to minister to us or to others. So what does he do? He takes that very troubling situation that he's dealing with, and he puts it into a compartment or a box. It's not gone. He can get it out of the box and deal with it again when he needs to deal with it. But it's compartmentalized at least for the time being. So it doesn't keep him from doing the other things that he needs to do. But here's the thing. Coping strategies like compartmentalization are short-term solutions. Jim can't leave that situation in a box forever, or he won't even be able to help that person that he's counseling, whose situation brought that difficult challenge to him in the first place. He'll have to think about it. Eventually, he'll have to deal with it. So we may have legitimate reasons to compartmentalize at least sometimes, or at least temporarily. But here's the thing, and the primary theme of this morning's message. There are some things we should not compartmentalize. There are things we should not file away in a box and not deal with, or allow ourselves to think that this one thing has nothing to do with other things in our lives. And one of those key things that we cannot, should not compartmentalize is our faith in Christ. If we somehow think of our faith as a non sequitur, in other words, having nothing to do logically with the other parts of our lives, then we're at best in danger of compartmentalizing sin and never letting it out of the box and thus never repenting of it. At worst, we're in danger of having a dead faith. That is a faith that's not real at all. In our house church, we're studying James chapter 2, and we talked about this idea as we studied James chapter 2. There's three times in 10 verses of James 2 where James says that if our faith isn't revealed by the way we live our lives, then it's dead or useless. In verse 17, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verse 20, James writes, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Hopefully that doesn't include any of us who are not among the foolish. That faith apart from works is useless. And then in verse 14, the beginning of this passage, James goes so far as to say this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Dead, useless, unable to save. That's the fearsome end result of when we compartmentalize our faith. When we think of our faith and we think what we believe has nothing to do with what we do, when we separate ourselves into different selves and our faith self doesn't have any impact on our school self or our family self or our team self or our neighbor self, or our everyday but Sunday self. It's a fruitless faith. That's what James is telling us here. One summary of what James tells us in this particular passage, this particular section of chapter 2, is that faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. Let me say that again. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit in our lives. So if there's no fruit, James is asking, is there real faith? Does our faith make a real difference in the way that we live our lives? Now, as we paid close attention to this, as we were studying this together in our house church 
a few weeks ago, we recognized also that we have to be very careful here. The opportunity for misunderstanding the gospel here is very real. What we do does not save us. What we do does not save us. We can do good things and not be saved. James has made it clear that faith is something God gives, not something we manufacture. This cannot be emphasized enough. We are saved by the abundant grace and glorious initiative of God. Acts of mercy are not means to salvation. We don't help the poor, for example, in order to be saved. Rather than being the means to salvation, acts of mercy are necessary evidence of salvation. We might also call acts of mercy the natural overflow of salvation. So we see this, and this is an important thing to note. That scripture is just as clear that if we are saved, if we have faith in Christ, and it's real and it's genuine, then fruit will follow that faith. One of our favorite passages of Scripture for many of us, this is one of my favorites, is Ephesians chapter 2. We read in verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, when we think of that passage, we often think of evangelism. We know the first couple verses, and we've related this verse to evangelism. By grace, you're saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's telling us about God's marvelous grace that saves us. It's not something that we can do. It's not something we can work up. The faith and the grace are gifts of God. What a wonderful truth. But what many of us forget is what's stated next in the next verse by the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Ephesians. We see the transition word for in verse 10, which clearly connects the next thought to the reality that we are saved by grace. So we see the thought we're saved by grace through faith, and that's very clear. But then we see verse 10 tells us what follows faith. I'm sorry, let me back up there. There we go. For we are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we're saved by grace through faith, but why? For, why? For we are his workmanship, created for good works, that we should walk in them. I mean, live them out. So before the beginning of time, not only did God through Christ make provision for us to be saved by his grace, but he prepared good works for us to do. The idea in the word works here is actually pretty all-encompassing. In the context of James 2, it's talking about specific kinds of mercy works, good works, okay? But it has to do also, when you see the way the word is used in other places in Scripture, it has to do with the trajectory of our lives, the way we live our lives. So while we recognize that while we're still sinners, we're sinners, of course, able to repent and receive his forgiveness in Christ, but the pathway of our lives is upward toward Christ if our faith is genuine. Now, if our lives were a stock chart, you've seen stock charts and they kind of go like this if, they're, if your stock is making money and they kind of go like this if it's not. So think of that for a second. But if our lives were a stock chart, the trajectory would still be upward, okay? It would be upward, even including those little downward dips that we have here and there. Thank God for the gift of repentance that allows those little dips that we have in our faith 
and, in our, and when, when we sin, to continue to be redeemed in Christ. It allows us to continue toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So faith also includes obedience to his word. His word gives clear instructions and clear principles about how we are to live our lives. James makes it clear in chapter 2 that works include obedience to God's word. And he uses Abraham's obedience in offering up Isaac as an example of faith that's alive and active and real and demonstrated. True faith must find some expression other than words. You don't really believe what you don't do. You don't really believe what you don't live out. If I said, for example, that I believe this building is going to blow up in five minutes, why are you guys just still sitting here? This building's going to blow up in five minutes. You apparently don't believe me when I said that. If I continue to preach and stayed right here and put myself and all of you in harm's way, then I don't really believe what I just said to you because my belief makes no difference in what I do. If I say I believe in Jesus Christ, but I ignore what Jesus himself said about God, what Jesus himself said about life, what Jesus himself said about how to live my life, about right and wrong, about good and evil, about salvation and damnation, then James says, my faith is dead or useless. If it hasn't affected my life, if it hasn't affected the way that I live, meaning there's no visible fruit in my life at all, then all I've done is I've compartmentalized my faith. I've put it in a box and said, this has nothing to do with the other parts of my life. I've made it into a non sequitur. And you all know what that means now, don't you? It's very easy to just look at our culture and see how this compartmentalization works. The people in our culture now aren't necessarily compartmentalizing their faith because they make no claim to faith to begin with. But they regularly provide very good examples of how this works, and these examples can be instructive to us. So I'm going to give you a few. That's because though they may not claim to have faith, they do claim to have some sorts of standards or morality. As I began to think about this, many examples leaped to mind. How many of you have seen one or more of the Godfather movies? I'm not, re- I'm not recommending it necessarily. They're very violent movies, but some of you have seen those. And Kwong, I've, I neglected to mention to you that there's an audio clip that's coming, or a video clip that's coming up now, so be prepared for that. I'm going to play that here in a moment. There's a powerful scene in the movie The Godfather where Michael Corleone, who is the godfather, is serving as a literal Catholic grandfather to his nephew. Now, in Catholic liturgy, the same kinds of questions that we might ask somebody here in the baptismal when we immerse someone here in believer's baptism, they're asked of the godparents, okay? So their godparents answer for the infant being baptized. In this scene, which I've edited for church consumption, Michael is answering these questions at the very moment that some of his men are preparing to murder and then actually do murder some of his enemies in revenge. The contrast between the words being spoken by Michael Corleone, Al Pacino's character, and what he's ordered his men to do is very stark. It's the ultimate, maybe even the extreme example 
of compartmentalization. So it's about a three-minute clip, so let's watch it. I don't know why, that's one of the first things I began to think of when I thought of examples of compartmentalization. There's a lot of them out there, but I remember that movie being very impacted by that scene, that here's a man who's in church stating these things that he says, I am and I believe. Meanwhile, what's happening? We see this clear compartmentalization. His Catholic faith has him saying, I renounce Satan, yet his mob is following his orders to kill his enemies at that very moment. And then the irony of the very last part of that scene where the priest says, go in peace. And then the family exits his church after a happy occasion. Meanwhile, all of his enemies lie dead at his own orders. A very clear cognitive disconnect there, huh? And an example of how we are capable of compartmentalizing almost anything. Again, I know this is an extreme example, but let's use that as an example. The other thing I thought of as an example is still very much in the news today when a powerful Hollywood agent and producer named Harvey Weinstein, and if you haven't heard his name, then you haven't watched any news in the last several months, was revealed to be a serial sexual harasser and abuser. It opened the floodgates of accusations. For a while, hardly a week could go by when others in the media and in movies and in entertainment were accused of gross misconduct. Now, there was one writer who noted how ironic this all seemed, as before long it seemed that half of the women in Hollywood were telling their stories of sexual harassment, and the men who weren't accused of the same thing, at least yet, felt compelled to join the protest, so all Hollywood was professing and protesting this sexual abuse that was going on. A writer named Mark Lockridge wrote this, This would be the same Hollywood that releases Fifty Shades of Grey and a host of other films that endorses a hookup and casual sex culture and then acts self-righteously shocked and surprised that the culture that they created isn't what they want to live in. Society tried to disconnect the sexual revolution from morality and seems shocked when people behave in immoral ways. We want to be free to watch, but we kid ourselves that the watching won't shape us. So Hollywood has compartmentalized sex. And even after all of these accusations and all of the people that these accusations have brought down and ruined their careers, movies and TVs still put sexual content in a very different category, into a box that they think will stay closed and not impact real behavior and real attitudes in their own industry. It's as if they say one thing has nothing to do with another. It's a total non sequitur. But it does. One thing does have something to do with another. It must. You cannot separate what is promoted as normal and okay on the movie screen or the television screen 
from what at least some people think is or should be normal or okay in real life. If we have any doubt about what we consume when we watch movies or TV or listen to popular music or read the latest hot novel, think about this commentary from uh, the radio commentary Breakpoint just this past week. Some of you listened to Breakpoint. This is about last week's Academy Awards Best uh, Picture winner. And the commentary is from the author uh, Eric Metaxas. Some of you have read some of his things. And I'm going to read some of the things that he said, just an excerpt from this commentary. The Shape of Water, it was the best picture in the Academy Awards, features an amphibious man-like creature which has been captured in the Amazon. It's taken to a government research lab, and a janitor named Elisa falls in love with the creature and helps it to escape to her apartment where they engage in sex. Of course they do. You see, the Oscars and the movies the film community chooses to honor remind us that every film has a worldview message for good or for ill. And then uh, Metaxas writes, I have not seen the film and probably won't, but Ted Baer's Movie Guide, a Christian film review site, points out that while The Shape of Water is masterfully executed and beautifully designed, it's also spiritually and morally empty, filled with extreme violence, foul language, torture, graphic sexual activity, and Bible-quoting Christian villains. Sadly, much of this is par for the course these days, but Movie Guide did not simply add up the number of obscenities and scenes of violence and sex. It also identified the film's underlying worldview. The review said, The Shape of Water has a strong romantic view. That is, it celebrates the philosophy of romanticism, which teaches that sexual impulses and the sinful desires of the heart should be lived out enthusiastically, not suppressed or rebuked. So this is what's coming out of Hollywood, and we're trying, they're trying to say that one thing has nothing to do with the other. Compare this reality with the whole movement against sexual abuse. Now hear me clearly. Sexual harassers and abusers deserve everything bad that's coming to them, assuming that they're guilty. The point here is not that because Hollywood glorifies illicit sexual matters, that sexual harassment and abuse is somehow okay. The point is that when you compartmentalize, when you fail or refuse to recognize that one thing does have something to do with the other, it's all but inevitable that the current environment will develop. Hollywood is trying to find a workable morality for sexual encounters without any external guidelines. The world wants all the freedom of the sexual revolution without any of the consequences, and those consequences are clearly being seen now. Those consequences include men and women who treat sex like an appetite to be satisfied or a tool to get what they want. As a believer in Christ, I have to ask the question, why can we sometimes... Why can the world not see the clear connection between these two things? The consequences are an inevitable outcome of taking one of God's good gifts and removing God's guidelines for using those gifts. The reality in our culture is that when people try to get rid of God and his guidelines that are truly there for our benefit, God is just not looking at us and saying, Naughty, naughty. They're for our benefit. It's not that we have no standards, 
There's almost an innate understanding that there must be some standards. Even the world sees that. Otherwise, people wouldn't be protesting the sexual harassers and abusers. So there's standards somewhere, right? But because culture standards have no foundation, the standards are a moving target. They constantly shift. How hard is that? What we need is a rich, safe, beautiful, trust-filled environment for sexual intimacy with fixed and sacred boundaries. Sound familiar? Because we are made in the image of God, life works best when we follow His rules and His guidelines and His principles for our lives, as we see in His Word. If you have a Honda automobile, you're not going to use the owner's manual for a Kenmore washing machine to maintain that automobile. That would be ridiculous. That would be a clear non sequitur, right? The word clearly addresses the consequences of rejecting or ignoring his word. And we see this in many places. I'll give you one example in Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. They have not paid attention to my words. They have rejected my law. Those are pretty sobering words, especially when you see the consequences. The world seems to think one thing has nothing to do with the other. But there are consequences to compartmentalization because our faith has everything to do with everything. When we say the word is our authority for faith and practice, faith means what we believe and practice means how we live And how we live means everything. Not just on Sundays or here in church. Not just when we're in church or with church people or with our Christian friends. One of the disturbing things to me is the disconnect that I see on Facebook. When I'm on Facebook, sometimes I'll see someone will post a scripture verse, and in the very next post, they have a suggestive or profane comment. Really? Do we really think that our Facebook compartment has nothing to do with our faith compartment? Would we say the same thing in church that we write in a Facebook post? James tells us that if our faith is real, it will make a difference. It will show in the fruit of our lives. It will show in every part of our lives. Not perfectly, but consistently, like that upward trajectory we talked about a moment ago. When we compartmentalize our faith, we're in danger of having different versions of ourselves. And I don't know about you, but that sounds very confusing to me. There's the church bill on Sunday mornings. Then there's the home bill when I'm at home with my wife and my father-in-law. Then there's the workout bill when I'm at the club. Then there's the dad bill when I'm with my daughters. Then there's coach bill at Bible Bowl. Then there's the out-and-about bill when I'm shopping or I'm eating out. Then there's the neighbor bill when I encounter a neighbor. How confusing is that? 
Shouldn't I be the same Bill wherever I am? Hmm? Whomever I'm with? It's as if we think our inner life as a boardroom table occupied by multiple employees, directors, if you will, of our multiple responsibilities or interests. Around the table, we divvy up workloads and time commitments to our normal self, our recreational self, and our religious self. James calls this kind of reality double-mindedness in James chapter 1, verse 8. In James 1, 8, he writes of the double-minded man and also adds that he's unstable in all that he does. If we divvy up God and his word as just a portion of our lives, think about this. We're detaching the other portions of our lives from his power. If God's in this box, how is he going to impact the other parts of our lives? The instability that James talked about in the life of a double-minded man likely means a fairly messy life. If we compartmentalize our faith, we put our faith in a God box that's off limits to God's authority or the Holy Spirit's prompting in our lives, we'll find those other parts of our lives more unstable, and inevitably our faith self, the God box or compartment, will become the smallest self we have. That's not what we want, folks. The most significant practical issue with compartmentalized living is that our religious self inevitably becomes our smallest self. Many Christians say they believe in the God of the universe and have trusted in the Son of God as their Lord and Savior, but then spend the bulk of their lives obeying other lords and trusting other saviors. There's only one Savior, folks, only one worthy of our trust. So we see that we should not, that we cannot compartmentalize our faith from the rest of our lives. Our faith should have the biggest influence in all of our individual selves. We do have individual selves. I mean, we have different hats that we wear. That's another way of saying it. The different uh, realms that we work in, etc. But our faith should encompass all of that. If it does, if it does, we will inevitably, James says, we will inevitably bear fruit. James isn't the only one that says that. We read in Matthew 7 and Matthew 12 that a tree is known by its fruit. We know an apple tree because of what hangs on its branches, apples. We know a grapevine because there's grapes on it. And let me say this, we make a big mistake if we just think of the cultural examples I used to illustrate that issue this morning and do not think of how this word applies to me, to each of us. It's easy to look at those sinners out there and say, yeah, that's, we see that in the word, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But that's not why we're here, folks. Any of us could get up here and rail against the things that we see in our culture. But what good does that do us? And we have to remember that James was writing to believers. God's message to us is always look at my own heart first. Always. Most of us here have real faith. Genuine, fruit-producing faith. But we're all at risk of not allowing that faith to impact every part of our lives. Let's ask ourselves, is there a part of our lives that we've compartmentalized, that we've shut off and shut out the Holy Spirit and said in practical effect, my faith has nothing to do with this part of my life. I can go on and do whatever I want here because somehow God's not in this box. I can ignore God's influence here because one thing has nothing to do 
with the other. It's a non sequitur. If we do this, then there's no fruit in that area of our lives, which is supposed to follow our faith. A tree, again, is known by its fruit, not just one branch of that tree. We read in John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So we see that the fruit from your life doesn't make you a disciple. It proves that you are disciples. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that fruit of the Spirit evident in every compartment, all the boxes of my life. I don't want to be satisfied with 9 out of 10. Let's say I have 10 boxes in my life, okay? There's probably more. If there are 10 compartments in my life, I don't want to be satisfied with 9 out of 10 or 8 out of 10. I want 10 out of 10. I want God in all those boxes. I want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, as he wrote in Philippians 1.11, that I am filled with the fruit of of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let that be our heart's desire. In closing, I want to read a passage from Colossians, and I want to make this my prayer for you and for myself. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the clarity of your word that fruit follows faith. Lord, we pray that you would help us guard our hearts from compartmentalizing the different selves that we all have, Lord. Help us not to separate our church self from our neighbor self, from our school self, from our work self, and the all other selves that we have, Lord. Help us, Heavenly Father, to not compartmentalize in any way, Lord, but to remember that you are involved in everything and that we want you to be involved in everything that we do. We want you to impact every decision we make, every thought that we have, and not separate those things out from you, Father God. So we thank you, Lord, for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through your word. And we ask now, Heavenly Father, that we would ponder these things and that you would indeed speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.